a series called It's Not Your Treasure to Bury, and so we've been working through the very things that God has given us. Probably more importantly, what Jesus has given us is his church. And that the things that Jesus has given us are not to be just buried or hidden within us or even to be just considered ours, but that whatever Jesus has given us for the use of the kingdom, that we will use that here through the local church, that we will understand that in the context here in the local church. Each week we've been saying this, 99% of us, all of our local, our, our ministry context will be here through the local church. Maybe 1% may be called to start other churches, go to, you know, do missions in a faraway place, things like that. But most of us, almost all of us, the context for what we do for the kingdom will be here in a local church community. And so what has Jesus given us with the expectation that we will give it away? And today we're going to look at discipleship. So it's kind of a main idea, making disciples, and we'll just qualify that as teaching others about Jesus and being a disciple, meaning being a student of Jesus, is embedded in the Great Commission, the very words we just read from Jesus through the book of Matthew. The expectation is that every Christian will live that out. The lack of discipleship today is why the church is lacking in so many ways. The church today is lacking in great big ways, right? Yeah, can we all at least agree? Like, okay, <clears throat> you mean we've got this perfect? No, well, we're clearer on that, good. The lack of discipleship is what we see as the church in America is waning, right? You hear about statistical studies, the rise of the nuns, those that... That, that define themselves as having no religious preference, right? You know, that, that number has vastly grown. Church attendance hasn't changed much, but the culture, the culture has changed dramatically from those who identify themselves as Christians, those who identify themselves in other faiths, or those who identify themselves as no religious preference, none. And so that really for us shows you that maybe the church, uh, you'll hear that the church is declining in America, you'll hear all kinds of things. Statistically, the church has just about as many people attending today as it did a decade or two decades or three decades ago. That's not good news. That's stable or static, but the world has grown. The country has grown. So the percentages are smaller. And the impact of that is, is that faith is not being handed off to the next generation. Most people, many of you, myself included, you're sitting here today and you came to faith not because your parents raised you in the faith, but because you came to faith later. And there's a good percentage of that. Now, if you back up five decades or so, that was the exception, not the rule. Most people were raised in the faith. And so there's been a breakdown of discipling even our children. There's been a breakdown in raising our kids in the faith. And now just understand this broadly as a church, if you have children, it is your responsibility to raise them to follow Jesus. It's not my responsibility, right? As a pastor, I get to partner with you in that. Our youth leaders and our children's leaders and all, and we get to partner with you in that. But ultimately, your kids, your responsibility. Your faith passed on to your kids, right? Does that make sense? And the simplest of terms for that is discipleship, right? Not a term we often use in culture, but a disciple is a student. 
right? That we are to be students of Jesus. Now understand, today, in the context of this, Paul is writing to Timothy, a person he has discipled. He has made a student. Now, Timothy is probably 40 years old, and he's pastoring a church in the, in the, in the city of Ephesus, the church in Ephesus. We have a letter to the Ephesian church written by Paul, and we have two letters written to Timothy after he takes over leadership of this church, a church that Paul began. Now, Paul sent Timothy there because the church was struggling. So understand, this is the words of Paul, the apostle, probably the most prominent figure in Christianity, second only to Jesus, right? Him, maybe Peter, right? Those are the others, right? But Paul is a profound has a profound impact on the first century landscape of Christianity. As he is a, a church planter, he starts many, many churches, Ephesus being one of them. He is a discipler, he trains up other leaders, he equips other people to be various leaders in different capacities in the church, and trains up pastors. We have two of those that get direct letters, we have Timothy and Titus. Two letters to Timothy, one to Titus. These are people that Paul raised up by partnering with having them partner with him in ministry while he was starting and leading and strengthening churches he had these people come alongside him and there was this skin on skin life on life kind of leadership transfer there's a kind of a saying that says that that discipleship is more caught than taught right that it's more learned together in relationship than it is in just taught right and so that's who Paul and Timothy are we're going to look at that in the context of discipleship today. So Paul is speaking to a leader who is a pastor, who is leading a church, who is one of Paul's most trusted leaders. And yet the call to Timothy is to become a disciple or to remain a disciple and to be a discipler. Remain a student of Jesus, teach other people about Jesus. So this is not for people who just come to faith and something we do in the first year they come to faith. This is an ongoing call, a perpetual call for every Christian. The words of Jesus before he ascends that Matthew captures, go and make disciples of all the nations. Don't stop here. Keep going. Go make disciples. Baptize them. Teach them to obey all that I've commanded you. And I'm with you. I empower you to do this. You're a student of me you make other students of me. That's discipleship. So here we go, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So that's Paul writing to Timothy, who is pastoring a church in Ephesus, a church that Paul started, Paul remained in relationship with, was struggling, having some, having some challenges in the church, had some leadership issues, so Paul sent the one that he could expect the best results from, the one that he trusted the most, Paul sent Timothy to Ephesus. Paul says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. There's a lot packed into this. With a clear conscience. He's like, listen, I told you everything I could tell you. You know, you learned. You were a good student of Jesus. That you were a good disciple. I know I've handed off the gospel to you completely. I want to write and encourage you, but I know you've been given what you need. But it's this line, I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors. Now bear in mind, 
Paul, formerly called Saul, was a, a, a prominent Jewish leader before he started following Jesus. He was raised as a Jew, okay? So ethnic Jew and a religious Jew, right? So he was raised in the Jewish faith. That was handed off to him. Jesus enters into humanity through the Jewish people as the Messiah, right? As the long-promised Messiah and the, and, and Messiah and the, the promise was to, that the Messiah would come through the Hebrew people, through the Jewish people. So Jesus does that in fulfillment of Judaism. Unfortunately, much of Judaism kind of parks there and are still waiting on a Savior or the Messiah today. Men, m- many Jews, though, turn and begin to follow Jesus thousands by the first year after Jesus ascends, thousands, tens of thousands. And then it hits the first century landscape and becomes a movement across all of Asia and into Europe and down into Africa. As this movement of Christianity begins, it often starts in Jewish quarters of cities. Paul had this habit of going into a city and preaching in the synagogue, opening up the Hebrew Bible, what you and I might call the Old Testament, and preaching Jesus from the Old Testament, the same way at Generations we teach Jesus from the Old Testament, right? Maybe? Yeah? All right, we're getting back to Isaiah in just a few weeks, so that's important, right? That the Old Testament speaks of Jesus to come, the eternal Jesus who is God, who will put on flesh and become the Savior of humanity. The Old Testament speaks to him coming. The Gospels talk about Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, ascension, right? And then the rest of the New Testament is either speaking about that, what Jesus accomplished on our behalf, how to live in response to that, and then we get a glimpse at the end of the New Testament of the ascended Jesus living and reigning now. Fair? So Paul would go into a city, he he would preach from the Old Testament, proclaiming the Messiah, and then saying, listen, this Messiah is Jesus. He has already come. He fulfilled these scriptures. And so oftentimes, those who would come to faith, it started in pockets of Judaism. Timothy is also one of those. Verse 4 says, I remember your tears. I long to see you that I might be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. Verse 5, a, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois, your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. He's not saying like, I hope so. Like, I know so. I know this faith dwells in you. Timothy came to faith. He is a product of generational faith. His faith started in Ju- his family started in Judaism, converted to Christianity, seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of Judaism, began to follow Jesus and passed that off. He's a third generation Christian. Note here that his dad is not mentioned. His dad never came to faith as far as we know. And at this point, we're pretty sure his dad didn't come to faith. Now that's something we could look at. Uh, Our church is unique. We aim at this. It's not by accident. We're about 50-50 men to women. If you look around, the room's pretty evenly split, right? That's not because of married people. It's, It's pretty split across married, single, whatever. We aim at that. Most churches are about 60, 40 women to men. If you've ever been to another church, it is dominant. It's dominated by women. Leadership might not be. They might have a male pastor, but you'd never look at, you'd never know looking at the congregation. I see a lot of heads going, yeah, I've seen that. 
We actually target that. We aim at trying to capture men because men have a significant impact, especially in the raising of children, especially in the raising of children in the faith. A unique impact, a much larger impact statistically than moms do. Dads have an amazing impact. Now, Timothy is the opposite of that. He happens to be raised by a grandmother and a mother who are Christians, and he follows suit. And then he meets Paul, and Paul disciples him. That's why Paul calls him his child. This is like his son in the faith. This is, this is language that Pastor Vinny, those of you who know Pastor Vinny and Pastor Mike, they use of me. Like I, I, I'm not their physical fathers, but I'm their spiritual dads. Like I took them as they, as they came to faith, and they came into leadership and poured into them, and we remained close like family. Not actual blood, but, but like that. As close as, if not more. That we are connected as a family. That's how Paul and Timothy relate to one another. There's a closeness there because of this discipleship relationship. Verse 6, it says, For this reason I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying out of my hands. The reason that Paul is writing to Timothy is about this generational passing on of the faith. Now, we've looked at how Paul was led to or grown in or matured in his faith, Judaism, by his family. He was raised in Judaism, became a, 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 an, a, an impactful, by, by any definition, had a huge impact in Judaism before he became a Christian. Like he was a prominent Jewish leader before he converted to following Jesus. He was raised in that. He knows the idea of a generational faith being passed down. But he also knows that he was the first one then in his family to pivot and follow Jesus. And so then those that he has made, like Timothy, they're not blood, but they're the next generation of his faith, if you will. So when I say generational discipleship, it, it isn't necessarily just a biological family, but it's, it's discipling the next generation of people. It doesn't even have to be people younger. I've had the great honor and privilege to disciple men older than me and, and pour into their faith and pour into their life and see them turn around and pour it into others. And so it doesn't have to be a father to a son or even a Christian to someone younger, although that is common. When we look at the next generation of faith, when we use that language, generations, this church was begun and the name generations came from this idea that there were generations of Christians before us that paved the way, both financially and, and in the gospel, that paved the way for us to start generations about four years ago. And so we stand on the shoulders of those Christians that came long before me, before you. We stand on the work that they did, the work that they began. And each new successive church, as we've planted three more churches out of here, they've now, one of those three churches has dotted out another church, all of those are an impact of those that came before us, particularly the folks at El Dorado, who helped birth us, right? And so we see this not as something new, but as a new product of something that's been going on for thousands of years. So we're not the first ones to do this. And, and, and by God's grace, we won't be the last one. <clears throat> So when I speak of the next generation of faith, sometimes I'm thinking millennials and Gen Z or whatever, or the kids in the classroom over there, 
But for the most part, I'm just talking about the next set of Christians. The people are going to pick up the ball and run with it in my absence when I'm gone. Young, old, black, white, male, female, doesn't matter to me. Those that will continue the ministry of Jesus here on this little footprint that we call generations. Generational discipleship is that. Who's the next generation of Christian? Biologically, you have a responsibility to your children, yes. Spiritually, we have a responsibility to everybody in here and those outside this building. That those who would desire to come to faith, that we have a responsibility to teach them about Jesus. And it is far more focused, discipleship is far more focused than what the vast majority of the church, even the church here, does. So fan into flame, that's the language that Paul uses. If you're a note taker, it says this. Now, just bear in mind, Timothy, a mature Christian and a pastor who is, is to continually grow in his faith, Paul calls him to fan into flame his relationship with Jesus. Discipleship is a call to be a lifelong student of Jesus, to be lifelong students of Jesus. If you've ever watched, I know Survivor just started its 40th season or some crazy thing, right? And a lot of times what they have is they have these fire-starting challenges, especially if they get near the end, like it was down to something and they got to choose a winner, they'll have a fire-starting competition. And, and every time, now if you've, I, I don't know why in the world anyone would ever go on Survivor who does not know how to make fire. Like seriously, 40 seasons, you would think they'd know, hey, this might come up. It's cold at night. You should learn this, right? But you'll see them shave off the magnesium, man. You'll see them get a spark, and they get a little thing that starts, right? You'll see them blow on it and just fan this flame as they add wood, as they add to this thing to grow it. You'll see them because fire requires oxygen, and they're adding oxygen to it, and they're fanning this, this little tiny flame into a fire. That's the image Paul uses. To fan into flame his faith. <clears throat> We're not talking about somebody who's not a grounded leader already. We're not talking, Paul's not writing to Timothy. He's like, hey man, I'm glad you came to faith yesterday. Right? Let's, let's, let's fan into flame what God has done. Right? He's saying, listen, years of me pouring into you, let's fan that into a flame. So if you've been walking with Jesus for decades, this is for you. Right? And if you're brand new to this thing called Jesus, that's for you. This is for everyone. This is go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. All. That takes a long time. I mean, I know you guys are incredibly obedient and patient and wise, and, but I'm hard to work with sometimes, you know what I mean? So it takes time. Right? Verse 7, for God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. You know, there's a time just to kind of take a snapshot. It's like every time you walk into the doctor's office, they do certain things like weight, your temperature, right, your, you know, your blood pressure, things like that. There's time just to take a snapshot of health, right? There's, those three metrics are super common every time you walk into a doctor's office. That's cool. This verse is kind of like that. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, verse 7, but of power, of love, and self-control. If we just say, okay, what's our vital signs right now? Like, what's, what's a snapshot of where we are? Of power, we would see that as like overcoming the things in our lives, 
right, of love. That's pretty self-explanatory. Loving one another, loving those outside the church that don't know Jesus yet, right? Love is, is a major marker of our faith, right? Especially understanding God's love for other people, especially that. And then your love for one another, something we talked about about three messages ago. And then self-control. Now, if we were to take a snapshot around the word self-control in the Western American church today, on Facebook, how would we do? About politics. Yeah, that one. Right? Just the word Trump elicits stuff, right? It doesn't matter which side you're on. It just elicits a conversation that devolves into name-calling and, pardon me, but just stupidity. And if it's not that, it's Pelosi or it's this or it's, it doesn't matter. But I've just been watching, I've been reading some of yours, but mostly just people. As they post something political and watching, there were two prominent articles recently in Christianity Today and a blog that responded to one of them. It was not... The response, I posted the response. The response was not for or against any candidate. It was about Trump, but it wasn't for or against Trump. It was about how an article had been written saying, how can you be a Christian and for Trump, whatever. Just responded to the article. And you can't post a neutral, just a neutral statement without people diving in and attacking the particular candidate on either side. I watched as somebody fairly conservative here in the church, and I watched as somebody fairly liberal out of state posted after, I think, like the last debate. Was that like the 107th debate or whatever it was, right? It just posted these neutral comments, because that was right after the um, impeachment vote for acquittal, all that. So it was right around that pocket. And I watched as a conservative and, and a liberal person that I know posted similar statements about just... Man, our tone on social media is terrible. Like Christians, we need to speak better. And I watched as each one of those became pro or anti whoever, pro or anti Trump or pro or anti the Democratic candidate, whatever it was about. But I watched as people can't just hear how our speech is corrupted and ugly and unchristlike without saying, but this. I was reading a 100-year-old document called The Theological Declaration of the Barman. If, you're, if you've ever heard of the Barman Declaration, it was written right after Hitler ascended to chancellor. Pretty heated time if you live in Germany. And there were some Christians that were, um, because of the position of Hitler against Judaism and other things, uh, some of the German churches bought in. Right? They were, and I'm not, by the way, I'm not comparing Trump to Hitler or Hitler to anybody today. I'm saying another thing happened like 90 years ago. I just don't want to listen. Some of you are like, yeah, he said Trump's Hitler. And some of you are like, oh my God, he said Trump. Stop. Don't tweet that. Okay, so, all right. <clears throat> wow. I love you, Marsha. I really do. <laughs> if nothing else, but for my own entertainment. But um, <laughs> the Theological Declaration of the Barman, they wrote this document as Hitler became chancellor. 
And because of his anti-Jewish stance, which is an understatement at least, but as that began, some of the Christian churches rallied against that. Like, hey, we have something in common. And so they started going down this road. Now, plug in if you're a Republican, a Libertarian, a Democrat, or whatever you are, and all of a sudden you see a candidate with something in common with you. Your position on healthcare, your position on abortion, or whatever it might be, and all of a sudden you align, right? Don't stare at her. She didn't leave because I said that. I promise. No, anyhow. So, <clears throat> and we buy in all of a sudden because there's one thing in common. So we run down this road missing some glaring gaps in that position, right? It writes these six declarations about how the church should act in culture when politically hot times exist. It's a short document, you can Google it, it's easy barman, think bar and men, that's it. You Google that, you'll get it, right? I know, some of you just checked out like, we could go to the bar right now. Anyhow, so, okay, so, <laughs> the fourth thing they wrote was that no matter what, and I'm just, I'm paraphrasing, no matter what, we are not allowed to change our message or our tone. And I just thought, man, that should be written today. So snapshot, how are we doing in the area of self-control? I think the place that needs the most self-control is social media. Because people get really brave behind a keyboard. And it's different when you're sitting across from somebody and they're a real human being and they have really different opinions than you, but they're really human. And we lose that on social media, and so we act the fool a lot. Verse 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, <clears throat> nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Paul, now continuing to talk about that power of God, he says, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Paul reminds Timothy of the gospel. Okay, just checking in again. Paul discipled Timothy. Does Timothy know the gospel? Yeah. Yes, he does. Paul sent Timothy, his trusted leader, to go and lead this church in Ephesus that was struggling. Does he assume Timothy knows the gospel pretty well? Yet, he, thank you. Yet he continues to remind him of the gospel of the Jesus who entered into human history because sinful humanity had broken away from God and God's holiness can't tolerate sin. And so this separation, this chasm of sin between God and humanity, and God has been busy pursuing, relentlessly chasing after sinful people with a plan the entire time of God becoming flesh that Jesus would enter into human history to bear the penalty for our sin, that he would live a sinless life that he would die a violent death in place of sinful people, for sinful people, so they would not have to, that he would be buried in the ground so that we could have life, and that he would be resurrected from the grave, that we could be transformed, that we could live in the power of change in the gospel. He reminds him of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, reminding him that we never leave the gospel that the gospel is the very power that all of us stay in 
And the church has drifted from that, thinking the gospel is this thing that introduces us to Jesus. And then all of a sudden we go on to, I don't know, something else. Good works, our efforts, I don't even know. We never leave the gospel. It's the power of Jesus, life, death, and resurrection that leads us to Jesus, that sustains us in Jesus, that gives us a hope for a future with Jesus, a security for our future. We never leave the power of the gospel. The gospel roots in us and changes us day after day, year after year, decade after decade. As simple as the gospel is to grab a hold of in the beginning, it is endless in its implications in our life. And because of our sinful nature, we drift into things that need to be changed by the gospel. We never leave the gospel. The gospel is the very power that the Holy Spirit applies to us to transform us, to meet our needs, to heal us and redeem us and make us more like Jesus, which is, again, a lifetime pursuit. Verse 11, he says, for which I was appointed. So he's picking up on what Jesus has done in the gospel. He says, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know for whom, know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. His statement is, in the gospel, I know I am secure eternally. That God will guard what God has given me in Christ. And that I will get across the finish line. But Paul says, I know that I am safe in the gospel. I know that being rooted in Jesus, I am secure in the gospel. He says, and so I know that as God appoints me a pastor, a preacher, an apostle, or even to suffer here in prison, which is where Paul is when he's writing this. He says, I know I'm in the right place. I know that I'm following the God who rescued me. You have to understand... Would God ever take Paul without thoroughly training him, without thoroughly equipping him? Would he ever send him out to start new churches or to suffer in prison for the gospel or to write letters that we will end up with as Bible? Paul writes more of the New Testament than any other author. There was a thorough discipleship in Paul's life that, that started when he came to faith on that road towards Damascus and pivoted into a three-year season inside of a church where we don't even hear back from him as he is just growing in his faith, figuring out how he was over here and how he gets here. And then the next time he emerges, he's a part of the church, he's a leader in the church, he goes out to start churches. Actually goes out first to go help a church that's struggling with Barnabas. From there, Barnabas and Paul go out and plant churches in several different journeys of church planting. That takes a ton of discipleship. That didn't happen overnight. Paul knows that he is rooted in something, that Timothy is rooted in something, but it takes constant attention, that we never stop being students of Jesus. Verse 13, he says to Timothy, follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There's a, an interesting sentence here that we don't have a whole lot of time to unpack. Follow the pattern of the sound words that you have heard from me. We have a tendency to believe that we're to follow the words that Paul says, but we miss that there's a pattern to them. Is that fair? We miss that there was something going on. If you were around last year, the last three months uh, before Easter, or I mean before uh, Christmas, September, October, November, 
we, did, we just spent about 10, 12 weeks together on a, an essentials class. And we just asked the question, what was the first century church teaching to those who came to faith before the New Testament was written? Like, what were they using? What were they teaching? And what we did slowly is we uncovered the idea that there was a proclaimed gospel and there was a response to how Christians should live. And it was common across Paul and Peter and John and James, and everybody had the same message as an undercurrent of what they're writing about. And Paul trained Timothy. He's reminding Timothy there was a pattern to how he trained him. If you're old enough, you grew up learning something like the Heidelberg Catechism, something that we're podcasting through right now. And if you hear the word catechism and you think Roman Catholic, don't. All right, yes, they do that. Catechism can be used for Buddhism. It, it's, not a, it's, not a, it's not a religion-specific thing. Catechism is just a way of learning by memorizing questions and answers. You memorize truth. The example I give and use often, it's like the way I learned my times tables as a kid. I memorized what three times three was so that when I needed it, I had it. If it's true and you memorize it, when you need it, it's really helpful. Paul taught Timothy in such a way where he had him memorize things. We'll see one of them today. But he says, follow the pattern of the sound words that you heard from me. So the pattern of sound words. Biblical discipleship done in the first century church was a systematic approach to the faith, most frequently done in a structured learning. The church in America over the last 50 years has moved away from this type of learning. There is some discipleship processes and structures that exist today, but they're not the same thing. They are different. In fact, one of the common ones that we use, or a book that we go through, it has a system that it approaches. It's got a decent organization to it. But I'll tell you where everybody falls apart. Every week there's a verse to memorize. Right, Joe? And uh, where does everybody struggle? Memorizing. What do I always hear? I have a really hard time memorizing. And then you go somewhere with them and you ride in a car and you listen to them sing along with every song on the radio. And I think you can memorize anything you really want to, right? We miss that memorization of truth. Not just Bible, not just passages, but of the implications and how they fit into our life. Paul is reminding Timothy that he was trained in such a way that he has the answers he needs. Verse 14, by the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The good deposit is the gospel and the way we live in response to the gospel. It's that simple. That's what Paul is saying. Hey, by the Holy Spirit, because it's going to take, <laughs> this is going to take divine intervention for us to hang on to anything, right? By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. So let's skip down to 2 Timothy verse, to chapter 2, verse 1. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus, and what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses and trust of faithful men, and you will be able to teach others also. I'm going to put this up on the screen, but I want you to look at this verse. I want you to note that there are four generations of disciples mentioned, okay? Understand that there are, you then, my child, Paul, Timothy, right? By the grace, be strengthened by the grace of Christ Jesus. And what you've heard from me, there's Paul to Timothy, in the presence of many, many witnesses, Paul didn't just train Timothy, he trained many, right? In trust to faithful men, who will be able to teach others also, the third and the fourth generation. Paul invested into Timothy and others with the expectation that they would pass that on to faithful men that would pass it on to others. 
Women, you're not left out. He's just using the generic term, right? Pass it on to faithful people who will pass it on to other faithful people. Discipleship that is given to you where you are not expected to pass it on to someone else is not biblical discipleship. Fair enough? Yeah, not a lot of, mm. all right. Paul's view of discipleship, 2 Timothy 2.2, always has four generations. First is whoever is discipling you, you are the second. The call to make disciples is not to look one generation ahead, but two generations. Who can you teach about Jesus and the gospel who will then go and disciple others? We have language in some of our vision that says making disciples who make disciples. And it's super redundant, but it's necessary today. Because many times you will spend time with somebody who will teach you a set of facts, and the expectation to pass that on to someone else is never even brought up. What good is it if it dead ends into us? That's why the church is where it is. That's why the numbers in the church stay roughly static, while the percentage of Christians in culture declines, and the rise of people who have no religious preference raises because we're not passing this on with the expectation that they will pass it on to someone else. Paul is abundantly clear. I gave it to you, you're to pass it on to faithful men who will pass it on to others, and that this will continue. And what Paul created, we call this the Paul-Timothy model. What happened there, we're a product of. It has been passed on generation after generation after generation for over 2,000 years now, or coming up on 2,000 years now, that we are now to pick up and be that next link in the chain. That we're to take that and keep going with it. I'm going to move into some application here over the next few verses. So we're just going to move quickly. Verse 3. Paul's going to give us three images to understand discipleship. He says, Share in the suffering as a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits since it's his aim to please the one who enlisted him. Right? The image of a soldier is, discerning, is about discerning what to do and what not to do. Add that slide, please. There we go. All right. That was the force. No? Okay, so Paul's view of discipleship. That next one. That one. Thank you. Paul uses the image of a soldier distinguishing between civilian and military work. A good soldier submits to a leader and has a specific mission to accomplish. Discipleship submits us to Christ and focuses us on what he has called us to do. Yes, that's true if you're a Marine or a sailor, but the Bible says soldier, it's an army thing, all right? So, but you have a leader, and you have a specific job at hand, right? That you are submitted to a leader, and you're to accomplish a task, not sway from the task. You don't want mission creep, right? You want to stay on target. Discipleship is that. It's training for the mission. Discipleship submits to Christ and focuses on what he has called us to do. Verse 5, the next image. An athlete is not crowned unless he competes according to the rules, right? This is the image of a competitive athlete. Next slide, please. Competitive athletes have coaches, and they know the rules of their game. That's true of pretty much any sport. They learn from those who watch them and can improve them according to specific outcomes. Discipleship is both being coached and you coaching others. Discipleship is coaching for outcomes, right? Coaching with a specific set of goals in mind. Right? Our faith as an image, again, the images break down at some point, but discipleship is simply coaching. It's like, take, I mean, Kobe is obviously on a lot of minds still, as we just lost Kobe, an, a great from LA, one of the best, right? Well, what was Kobe doing when his helicopter went down? 
taken his daughter to a camp, right, to coaching. He had spent all those years being coached by epic leaders from his youth all the way on up, right? And then he was in turn living that out, right? Kobe had his flaws a few years back where he was in the news for other things. But I love that when he did go, not love that he went early, but love that when he did go, he was with his daughter and some coaches and they were headed somewhere and he was passing on the game of basketball to other people. That's a huge image for us as we learn discipleship. It's coaching for outcomes, coaching according to a specific set of rules. That's what Paul says. Verse six, the third image. It is the hardworking farmer who ought to have the first share of the crops. Discipleship is education for the faith. The next slide. The farmer must live off what he grows. Education makes sure that hard work is not wasted. Consider the education you need for any career or hobby. Discipleship is learning from more mature believers and teaching those newer to the faith, right? Isn't it frustrating, Christians, when you try really hard in a particular direction and struggle to get there in your faith, right? Just like in a job or anything else, we go to school for most of our careers, right? I did, many of you did. We even take classes to figure out a hobby, or if you pick up something, I don't care if it's basketball or needlepoint, doesn't matter to me, somebody teaches you how to do something. We know that's true in every other area of our life, but we neglect that in our faith in the most important area of our life. How about raising our kids in the faith? How about discipling that into parents? How about parents discipling their faith into their kids, right? No one just takes on a job they don't know how to do and just tries really hard. I mean, sometimes that might work, I guess. We go off-roading. I, I learned a lot about going four-wheel driving, going off-roading, and being in the outdoors from Rob, right? We do things. I learned about music from Joe, all these things. We always know there's somebody smarter, better, more equipped, more educated than us, And we assume we need their help in order to achieve whatever it is we set out to do. Verse 7, it says, Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Remember, Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Paul always points back to the gospel. Every letter, everything he does is rooted and grounded in the gospel. So, discipleship is gospel training. The gospel is the power that saves us, sustains us daily, and and is our hope for the future. Discipleship is continually continually training ourselves and others in the ongoing work of the gospel, the gospel does in our lives. We never stop learning about the gospel and how it applies to our lives. In fact, if you want a verse that just kind of fits that first sentence, look at 1 Corinthians 15, 1. I think it's 1 and 2 maybe. Not right now, Marcia. No, I'm just kidding. Anyhow, so... uh, but there's a, it talks about the thing that saves us, the thing that keeps us, and the thing that, that points us forward in hope. The gospel never stops. We don't leave the gospel. I do like a small enough room where we could at least be playful in church, right? At least we have fun. But it's true that we, we, we think oftentimes like, okay, well, now I know Jesus, so I don't need the gospel unless I'm sharing it with somebody else. Now I've got to go on to this. And we misquote verses to talk about leaving behind the milk and going for meat. No, it's just diving deeper and deeper and deeper into the gospel. I want to do something really quick, and, and just because we're short on time, read with me, if you will. Verse 8, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David. So you can hear the gospel as he's going back through it. It's preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, as we said he's in prison. The word of God is not bound, therefore I will endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is the part I want you to see. Verse 11, 
The saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. I want to close with this, and we don't have anywhere near the time to unpack all of this or all its implications. Again, we can do this at another time. I would love to have this conversation. Can I have the next slide, please? We tend to read this passage like this. The saying is trustworthy, blah, blah, blah. And you see how it's formatted? Or you see it's a lack of formatting? Can I have the next slide, please? Did we get it all on one slide? We, we did kind of. If you look, yeah, actually that works. If you look at your Bible, it's all indented and fragmented. And now if you were in essentials last year, I don't want you to answer this, but do you know why that is? This is a creed or a confession, a thing that, he, that Paul had Timothy memorize. This isn't a quote from the Old Testament. This isn't a song. This is something he had Timothy memorize. There are, they do indent quotes from the Old Testament often. When Adam sings early in Genesis, it's indented. But there's always a reason. This particular reason is Paul had Timothy memorize things. These creeds or these statements of what they believe ended up creeping, well, not creeping, but Paul wrote them into Scripture. And we get little glimpses of the way that Paul taught Timothy. Not just that he did, not just the outcomes of it, not just Timothy going on to lead, but we get little glimpses of things that Paul actually had Timothy memorize. I would suggest this, and it's the next slide. Discipleship should be memorized learning. Paul gives us a window into something Timothy must have memorized as a part of his learning, allowing us to see in the way he discipled people. It is a much larger conversation, but it allows us to ask ourselves, how much are we willing to put into learning our faith? Remember that earlier thing. Remember the pattern of my sound words, Paul says to Timothy. And then we find little bits and pieces of sound words and the pattern in which Paul handed them off to Timothy. I'll close with this. We have a discipleship gap in the modern American church. We have a tendency to take church and treat it differently than anything else we do in life. Some of you are highly educated. Some of you are working on postgraduate degrees. Some of you are highly educated with your hands and skills that you do with your hands. You learned them somewhere and you gave yourself to figuring them out. Whether you're a carpenter, you build furniture, you're a plumber, you're into biology or chemistry or math, whatever it was on any end of the spectrum, working with special needs kids, an attorney, doctors, police, we have all kinds of folks in the room. It took time to get where you are in that vocation, career, or hobby. We need to devote that kind of time to something eternal in our faith. Generations Church, our discipleship is done a couple of different ways. There's like some one-on-three groups that are gender-specific. You can ask more about that. But this year, we're committed to building discipleship more into our community groups, taking things that our, that our leaders, our people, the folks that call this church home, and building it into those things. So it is much more systematic, more to come on that. But I would say this, if you are not being discipled, and you are not discipling, you need to ask yourself the question today, why not? What about this treasure of the gospel that God has given you? And how are you called not to let it just dead into you or bury it, but to pass it on to those 
And I would say this, maybe you're like, man, I don't know enough. Let me tell you something. If you've been here today and last week and you know one verse in the Bible, there's a lot of people that don't know that. You have something to pass on. We want to help you make sure that's a systematic way. We want to help make sure that you're passing on the right thing, that you guard the good deposit, that, it, that it's actually the good deposit. But we want to partner with you, especially if you're a parent here or if you hope to be a parent in the future or you're a pre-parent getting ready to have a baby. We've got some of that. We want to make sure you know this is, this is, is mission critical for our children. Discipleship is a part of us followers of Jesus, for the rest of our life. Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. We thank you that you took the time to enter into humanity and you spent those three years with, with enough men to pass on this gospel. And then you even, even Paul, after that, made sure that there was another one to continue the message. Paul then took on Timothy, Titus, so many other people. And he passed that gospel on in whole part and how we live in response to the gospel And then he encourages us to never, never stop learning, to never stop growing in our faith. So Jesus, help us to be students of yours. Help us to take on the task the way we would take on anything else that we are passionate about, that we are given to, a vocation, a learning, a pastime. Let it be much more. Let us give ourselves much more to that. Jesus, we love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.